This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey, this is former WWE superstar and ECW original, The Blue Meanie. And Josh Chernoff. And uh, we're excited to announce that Mind of the Meanie is now powered by the MLW Radio Network. Myself and Josh Chernoff will bring you a show every week where we talk about everything from wrestling, movies, sports, and useless knowledge. But most importantly, we have a great group of neighbors there with front row material. Absolutely. Front row material. We've got Mike Freeland. We've got Mikey Whipwreck. And we have got hashtag... This is Jerry Lynn. You're welcome again for that. I love to be here with you guys. I'm glad to call you neighbor. Maybe I'll stop over for uh, some extra coffee or a cup of sugar or have a slice of dropped pie. Ditto. Please tune into Mind and the Meanie. Please keep supporting Front Row Material and we'll be a part of this great MLW radio network. Hey everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. What is going on everybody, Mike Freeland here for another installment of Overbooked, which chronicles unauthorized story of ECW. Now, we left off on chapter 12 last time, now we are on chapter 13, which is entitled Barely Legal which all of you hardcore ECW fans know that Barely Legal was ECW's first pay-per-view. But hardcore ECW fans also know that it almost didn't happen. And we're going to kind of go into that and talk about why Barely Legal happening barely happened, if, <laughs> if we're going to be a little humorous here. We start off the chapter with a quote from Axel Rotten who says, to me, it never really seemed like it was really a reality. It was on, and then it was off again. And this is Axel referring to whether or not ECW would ever make it to pay-per-view. Now, guys, keep in mind, Barely Legal is happening just months after the mass transit situation, which definitely left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, especially when it came to the pay-per-view companies, as Paul was trying to lobby to get his product onto pay-per-view during a time when ECW was looked upon as a very over-sexualized, over-violent, gratuitous violence at that, and it really wasn't something that appealed to many pay-per-view outlets. So what we're going to do is we're going to introduce some people that are going to kind of take you through the timeline here of how ECW finally ended up getting onto pay-per-view. Now, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Toot, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, was event manager with Premier, one of the pay-per-view companies that was debating on whether or not to carry ECW's pay-per-view. Now, her duties included handling all of the wrestling pay-per-views. There was definitely some concerns about the level of violence. It wasn't for children, she would say. Uh, company officials who had talked to Heyman tried to let him know that they weren't thrilled with ECW's product, but Heyman uh, tried to ease their concerns by telling them that uh, it was going to be different and that they had nothing to worry about. Well, word got out that ECW was, I don't want to say the word struggling with making it on pay-per-view, but that they were going to be having some difficulties. So people started writing hundreds of emails from fans, Toot said. They were well-written. They were well-thought-out letters. They were not rants from screaming, crazy people. We read each and every one of them, 
And that's what got ECW onto pay-per-view. So let's think about this here for a second. So it wasn't Paul. It wasn't Paul's negotiating skills. It wasn't Paul's business acumen. It wasn't the fact that ECW was looked upon by pay-per-view outlets as a big moneymaker. But it was looked upon that it was the audience. And, and to my knowledge, this had been one of the first times that an audience had lobbied and had petitioned directly to the pay-per-view company to get a product on the air. And, you know, I got to I gotta give this woman credit. Elizabeth Toot definitely gave ECW an opportunity. Like, like they said, she read and some of her colleagues read each and every letter that was written. And they finally came to the decision, you know what, we're going to take a... We're going to take a flyer on ECW, and we're going to see how this works. Now, that was not exactly the end of it. So, at this point in time, Todd Gordon on the latest ECW TV had mentioned that Barely Legal would be emanating from the ECW arena on April the 13th. Now, the pay-per-view officials also decided to throw in some additional caveats to carrying the ECW pay-per-view. They were adamant that ECW had to have a director. Now, ECW did have a production team, which was created through uh, the hard work of Charlie Bruise and Ron Buffone. However, they did not have somebody who met the credentials that Premier was looking for. However, uh, luck was on the side of ECW once again, and they were able to find Michael Vetter, who was a 14-year veteran of sports television, having directed everything from college basketball to the NHL to the King of the Cage shoot fighting events, soccer, lacrosse, and fitness programs. He actually was a staff producer for ESPN Sports Center. Now, he met the qualifications that Premier was looking for, so everything seemed to be fine, right? He was going to be working directly with Ron and Charlie. Paul seemed to be happy with that. Uh, Michael seemed to get along with everybody. Here was the one problem with all of this. Michael Vetter knew nothing about professional wrestling. So what ECW needed to do was bring Michael up to speed with how a wrestling show worked, how to shoot a wrestling show. The one person that was put to work directly with him was none other than Tommy Dreamer. Tommy worked extensively with Michael Vetter to tell him how the show was. Uh, he even kept him up to date and gave him a list of the different moves and maneuvers and things to look for when it came to each individual wrestler so he could make sure that he captured that. Vetter would go on to say that if it wasn't for Tommy, this would have never worked whatsoever. Tommy gets uh, a lot of credit nowadays for being a very influential person when it comes to wrestling as far as not only being a performer but being a producer as well. But Tommy worked with Vetter very, very closely to make sure that he didn't miss anything. He actually made sure that Vetter had a list of the maneuvers and, like I said before, the different nuances of what each wrestler would do in the ring. And Vetter started to learn that, started to memorize that. Vetter also ingratiated himself with the roster, asked them questions, and made sure at the end of the day that he was doing his part to make sure that each performer was highlighted exactly the way they should be. So, all seems to be going well with the pay-per-view. Everything seems to be going quite, quite well. As we fast forward to the night of the show, Heyman in particular seemed to be uh, a little more than nervous, to say the least. He had told his entire crew that this would be the night that would get ECW over the hump if they were successful and would also lead the company to long-term stability 
something that the company had never known. Now, Barely Legal was right there, and it was a make-or-break night, and that's the message that Paul was reiterating to all of the talent. However, as our story continues, we will also find out that behind the scenes, WCW was quietly raiding the talent roster of ECW. Putting that aside, for the sake of the evening, the wrestlers had on their best ring gear, freshly waxed boots, and even security had pressed outfits. And when the show began, Joey Styles was standing in the ring with a wild crowd of nearly 1,200 people all chanting ECW. Ring announcer Bob Ortiz said the magnitude of the event struck him as he was on his way to the ring that night. Todd Gordon opened the show by announcing that the Eliminators would have to forfeit the tag team belts because Perry Saturn would be out with a knee injury for months. Instead, John Cronus battled both Bubba Ray and Devon Dudley on his own. Bubba Ray and Devon had their way with John Cronus until Perry Saturn came to hobbling down to the ring. He climbed to the top rope, he went ahead and dropped his elbow and pinned Bubba Ray to secure the victory and retain the tag team titles to the shock of many. Another match that night focused on the rivalry between Taz and Sabu. Longtime heel Taz won the match, but then offered his hand to Sabu in a handshake for giving him the fight of his life. Sabu took his hand, but then shortly after that, attacked Taz, and in came in Rob Van Dam, beating him senselessly. Bill Alfonso, who was the manager of Taz at the time for over a year, came into the ring, removed his Taz shirt to reveal a Sabu shirt. This would get the crowd incensed. Rob Van Dam and Taz continued to get a chorus of boos from ECW fans. Van Dam would even go ahead and grab the mic and say, I love to work on Mondays. In his subtle yet smirky way, Van Dam was sending signals to both WCW and the WWF that he was willing to work for either of the flagship companies. Now, Van Dam was legitimately hot about originally not being scheduled for the show, as he was not the only one. New Jack and Axel Rotten were both furious that they had been left off the barely legal pay-per-view. A lot of wrestling fans actually questioned what was going on with that, because many believed that it was Axel Rotten, and New Jack's personality, charisma, and level of violence that got ECW to where they are today. At one point in the show, Joey Styles pointed out, we don't have any pretty blue mats on the floor here in ECW. This ain't Disney World. And it finally, in the main event, Terry Funk wins the ECW title after winning a three-way contenders match to qualify. Seconds after his win, Funk went into the crowd to celebrate as the show went off the air. Now this timing could not have been any better, as the show almost went off the air immediately after the match had ended, and seconds before all power went out in the ECW arena. Front row regular to ECW events, John Bailey said, the aftermath of Funk's title win was one of the most emotional moments we had had ever experienced. He came right into the crowd, he said, we did it. We did it. It actually made me cry. It almost makes me cry right now just thinking about it. Funk said the moment was an emotional one for him as well. Funk said people backstage also got caught up in the emotion of the last few minutes of the show, largely because of the realization that they had pulled off something no one thought would ever be possible. They all had lumps in their throat, even Paul Lee. Any post 
celebration would uh, have to be put on ice because the success of Barely Legal was quickly followed by more distressing news. Nearly 10 days after Barely Legal had ended, Raven had given Paul Lee his notice. He was heading to WCW after accepting a three-year contract reportedly worth $225,000 annually. Now, one of the matches on the card that we didn't cover, but was very impactful with this pay-per-view and subsequently affecting the WWF, was a six-man match, which included Japanese wrestlers from Michinoku Pro Wrestling, which was a company that had highlighted high-flying performers such as Dick Togo, Super Delphin, Taka Mishinoku, Sho Funaki, and the head of the company, the great Suzaki. The seeds for this had actually been planted about a year or so before Barely Legal had ever happened. In 1996, a man by the name of Sheldon Goldberg, who was a promoter for independent wrestling up in New England, was also the publisher of a newsletter called Matt Marketplace. Well, after getting inquiries from his readers, about Michinoku Pro Wrestling and about where people could find their merchandise in the United States, he decided to make a call. So Goldberg reached out to Michinoku Pro Wrestling to find out if fans in America would be able to get their product. Well, conversations started going on between Goldberg and the promotion. Weeks later, they ended up coming over to the United States to test their waters. They ended up working some independent shows, and at one of those independent shows, was Paul Heyman. The relationship between Michinoku Pro Wrestling almost didn't even happen. And why? Money. ECW wrestlers quickly realized during their tenure in the company that money was always going to be an issue, and Paul Heyman being honest with them was, well, always going to be an issue. And that was once again the culprit in the Michinoku Pro Wrestling situation with Barely Legal. Paul was supposed to send money to Michinoku Pro Wrestling to get the wrestlers to come over for the Barely Legal pay-per-view. They were supposed to send $10,000 as a deposit, and then the rest would come when they came over for the pay-per-view and they would pay the remaining balance. Well, days before the event, no money was sent. Local promoter who introduced Paul to the Michinoku Pro Wrestling ambassadors had continued to reach out to Paul and say, where's the money? They're still waiting. This doesn't look good on me, and it definitely doesn't look good on you. Just days before the barely legal pay-per-view event was scheduled to happen, Heyman became worried that Suzaki and the company would not appear at the show because they still had not received their check. Heyman said, when you get off your plane and arrive here in Philadelphia, you'll have a check waiting for you. Heyman said, don't worry. A check would be waiting for you at the Holiday Inn where all the wrestlers were staying. So, of course, when we got there to the Holiday Inn to check in, there was no check. The night before Barely Legal, Paul Heyman held a banquet to honor Terry Funk. Brief excerpts from the banquet appear in the wrestling documentary Beyond the Mat. When the banquet was over, Goldberg, who had been the liaison between Michinoku Pro Wrestling and ECW, was waiting for Heyman. The money Heyman owed the Japanese was now 25000 It was going to be their entire appearance fee. There was no time anymore for down payments. So, they finally went up to hotel room at the Holiday Inn where Heyman was staying, and Heyman finally wrote the check for 25000 to Michinoku Pro Wrestling, who had been waiting. Now, they were thrilled. When Suzaki and his associates were in Philadelphia, the day of the show, they were given the check for $25,000. Now, behind the scenes, 
Suzaki had actually believed that he wasn't going to get paid at all through Heyman, but he was willing to swallow that loss in order to break foot in the United States wrestling territory and somehow try to make a splash on pay-per-view. The day after Barely Legal, Suzaki and the company went to Stanford, Connecticut, because word of how hot the six-man tag went made its way to the WWF. They headed to Connecticut to meet with Jim Ross and Bruce Prichard. By then, the internet was raving about how awesome that match was. Suzaki's in-ring rival, Taka Mishinoku, got booked for the WWF's July pay-per-view. And it was shortly after that that the WWF and Vince McMahon had green-lighted the light heavyweight division. With one of its focal points being Taka Mishinoku. That's going to do it for this chapter in the extremely unauthorized story of ECW. Guys, if you enjoyed this, please, by all means, go on over to iTunes, leave us a review, let us know what you think about the show, and uh, keep sending me your memories of ECW as well. If you are reading this book along with us, send me your questions as well. Love to engage with you and answer some of your questions if that is possible. That's going to do it. My name is Mike Freeland, and I'll catch you next time on the next installment of Overbooked. The world of NLW Radio never stops.